welcome back to System Mix Trivia, the podcast where sometimes even humans have leap seconds. This is Brent. I'm Johnny McFlair. That's not your name. That's totally my name. <laughs> that is absolutely not your name. Have you ever seen me flare my nostrils? Well, that's true. Okay, so now we're talking. That's why they call me that. And I don't really know who they is, but I'm calling me that right now. Who they is? Yeah, I don't know who they is. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, up tonight, I've got some results of a quick little, uh, not poll, but I guess just ask for feedback on Twitter. Just gonna blow through that. I've got a fun little fact about Windows, which I'm sure everybody's heard about by the time this will actually publish. But, you know, it still remains stupid enough to warrant recording in the annals of our archive. The annals of our archive? The annals. A-N-N-A-L-S. Halls. kind of still looks like annals. It's paper. the halls of our archive. Is that better? Yes. Okay. <laughs> My gosh. That'd be a long night. Yeah, I'm super wound up if you haven't caught on yet. <laughs> oh, I can tell. And we will also be talking about routing and firewalling on a full x86 hardware box. So basically replacing your home router, including Wi-Fi. Uh, I'm going to give just a really brief introduction about IPv6. And uh, we'll also be discussing some VPNs. So we've got a nice little, nice little network theme going on for this episode. So first up, I asked on Twitter... If you could give one piece of advice to system administrators, system engineers, network administrators, or network engineers, what would it be? And I, I targeted this mostly towards the uh, the InfoSec crowd I know on there. And I, I will put in the show notes the attribution, you know, so you can check out their own Twitter and, and follow them, which I highly recommend because you'll learn all sorts of really cool, interesting stuff. The, uh, the first one was learn to triage problems well and learn it from people who do it day in, day out. Presumably, you know, you you would be the one triaging yourself, but it's still important to learn how to do that well, so I can definitely get behind that. Someone said, nail down the fundamentals, which I'm, I'm guessing are some of the stuff we're even talking about tonight, you know, routing, firewalling, IP addressing, IP protocols, stuff like that. Someone said RTFM, of course. For those who aren't aware, uh, RTFM is old acronym that uh, expands to read the fucking manual. It's friendly manual. No, it's it's fucking manual. That's that's how it was started. That's what I maintain it is. But yeah, some people say read the friendly manual because they might be in an NSFW context, which is not safe for work. Uh, another one says never accept 24-7, 365 on-call duty. Rotate monthly with someone under director of operations. And then they follow up with a couple others. Make sure you take your vacation days throughout the year, so on and so forth. This one, I, I didn't know quite what they meant, because I, I'm not sure if English is their first language, which is okay, which is totally fine. I still appreciate the... But from what I understood, it's referring to you should share the workload with someone that is your peer. So I'm not sure what why they felt the need to specify under director of operations, but that's okay. Another one said vodka gives less of a hangover than whiskey. I wouldn't know. I've, I've never actually had a single hangover, I don't think. Not even that time we couldn't record because you drank too much? That wasn't a hangover. That was just me being sick. There's a difference. That was like right after I was drinking. That doesn't mean you didn't have a hangover the next day. Well, I didn't, though. Well, I felt great the next day. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> Make sure to take your vacation day throughout the year. We said that project work with milestone bonuses and get it in writing. They may not pay otherwise. Same guy, so it's a bit of a broken English, but I, I think he's referring to uh, make sure you basically just have as extensive a contract as possible to ensure that you actually have legal backing, which is also sound advice, especially if you're a freelancer. You want clearly defined roles, responsibilities, goals and milestones, things like that. If possible, a bonus on completing milestones X number of days or weeks or whatever before their expected time, things like that. I really like the next one because I can, I can totally get behind the next one. Don't just learn what buttons to push and or when, learn the fundamentals of your technologies. That is super solid advice. That's probably maybe the number one on this list for me. Without understanding what you're doing behind the scenes, you know, a monkey could do your job. A bash script could do your job. It adds no value to the company. It adds no value to yourself. You're cheating yourself out of a deeper understanding. When you start to dig deeper and understand the internals of systems and how and why they do what they do, then you gain an under not only an appreciation of the engineers who came up with it, but also you kind of get this innate sixth sense of of where to look when things start going wrong. You become very intuitive about what to do next and, and where to go and what plan to follow. So it's, it's definitely something that I can get behind. Someone else said, make sure 20% of your time is spent not doing administration slash engineering. Get an unrelated hobby. 
stay off the forums. Well, internet trolls do abound, and there's certainly a lot of toxic discussion on the, the forums, whatever it may be. Social media seems to be the modern-day forums these days. I do have several unrelated hobbies. I like picking locks. Locks I own, I should clarify that. I'm. Mean, it's, a, it's a fun little puzzle, you know? You get to figure out, without looking, how the inside of the lock is. Really fun stuff. Yeah, I really am on board with this one because especially when I first started working as a sysadmin, I think I really got sucked into it. And, you know, I would bring work home with me every night and I'm just not in a position. I'm not getting paid enough to be in that position right now. So uh, sometimes I really have to step back and remind myself that I need something else to do that is not on a computer, just something analog. So for me, a lot of times that means picking up a pen and a piece of paper and actually writing something, whatever it may be. Yeah, you got into uh, calligraphy slash letter writing right? Yeah, not so much the calligraphy. My girlfriend does calligraphy, but I do have fountain pens and I like to practice my handwriting and make it, you know, as legible as I can. Right. And then my other thing uh, is my mandolin that I'm starting to get back into, so. Nice. I should I should pick my banjo back up. Yeah, it'd be fun. We could just have an episode where we play and serenade each other. I don't know how that would work with the time delay, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll just do dueling banjos with a delay. That, well, maybe. <laughs> that would just defeat all dramatic purpose of that piece. But yeah, so pretty good advice too. I mean, a lot of my hobbies are related to what I do during the day, but it's it's projects that I want to do and learn how to do, but don't get a chance to actually do as part of my normal day-to-day duties. So that way, when something comes up where I do need to lean on those skills, I already have them. Super awesome. And I just generally have a huge passion for for that kind of stuff. So I like the next one because it's it's intentional broken English. I know the person who tweeted it and, you know, she's, she's a native English speaker and all that, but it needs to be said in a Russian accent. So Russians, I apologize. Apologize if this offends. Now the pressure's on. I don't. I don't think I can do a Russian accent. Learn to know when to listen and when to be aggressive, like bear. How was that? <laughs> man, that was pretty funny, actually. Was that pretty oh, bad? Oh man, no, I liked it. Okay, good. I'll keep it in. But yeah, learn to know when to listen and when to be aggressive like Bear, which is also pretty good advice. I like the suggestions she gives. She gives some good ones. The next one is, if you are a lone admin, don't give up your holidays just because someone derped. So true. A lot of people make a lot of stupid mistakes. You can't be held accountable for all of them, let alone any of them. Um, Ideally, you shouldn't be held responsible for any of them. Realistically, you probably will be at least some of them. But all of them, forget it. I mean, that's, that's just too much pressure and that's not worth the time. Similar to an earlier one, someone said, find a third-party IT support provider and get the business to buy rolling hours just in case. I have always been with 24-7, 365 companies, so this hasn't really been an issue. And we do have, like, night staff and stuff. Or there have been cases where I was the night staff. Tectonic days. Not so much. Well, you a worked small orange was hours there. Yeah, I was kind of all over the place with Tectonic. But a small orange, I was, like, almost solely night shift and weekends. I took the hours no Nobody else wanted. I was going to say, my bosses love me for it, but you know. You know, I've mentioned this before, but we don't really have the kinds of services that have to be running all the time. It's kind of nice because at, at the research facility I work at, we have jobs that will run for three weeks at a time or or even more in some cases. So that becomes problematic if a job fails after it be, had been running for two and a half weeks and it only had two days to go. But uh, for most of our needs, we just take care of it during normal hours. So I'm really fortunate. And we do also have like a budget set aside for consulting. Yeah, I think I think that might be a better way to do it. set aside a consulting budget. Right. So if we're in this like bind and we just have too much going on for the resource we have we can always call someone and say hey how do we do this and you know we're not paying to fly someone out to boulder but at that point at least we have someone on the phone that can usually help us out yeah and another way to do that is um if you're a like a red hat based shop and and you know you have the budget of course actually spring for that rel subscription the support isn't always that great but they're usually able to get you up and running with like some kind of workaround uh if not totally fix the issue and they have access to uh the developers and engineers you can you can promise a future fix so i mean it's generally it can be worth it for a rel subscription so feel free to go that route the next one and remember keeping in mind these were with uh infosec professionals compliance doesn't mean secure i know this because i i know a lot of the compliance programs pci there's a couple of them just because you're compliant in them doesn't mean anything because these are like the the weakest lowest level requirements and and honestly like all the most of the auditors i found don't even check them anyways or they do check them and you fail. <laughs> so most of them just don't want to deal with their their client being pissy at them because their client failed 
the audit, you know, so they just blindly rush on by, whatever. And there's multiple parties at guilt there, I think, for that. But yeah, all that to say, that's a really good point, that compliance doesn't mean secure. Take the extra time, go the extra mile, read the extra documentation, it's going to pay off, I promise. I mean, after all, that's that's what you're getting paid for. You don't just sit around and push buttons. You need to you need to understand what's going on. You need to keep up with modern vulnerabilities and things like that. Someone said you got to be crazy to be crazy. Always sound advice. Definitely relevant to our field. Always quote your regex, your regexes. So like your regular expressions, because you just wrote a bunch of pipelines and subshells. Always be careful with those. Make sure you validate input and validate output. Get experience in non-tech areas too, gives you new perspectives. Pretty similar to what we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Make sure your response plan is proactive rather than reactive. Also a good one. As an example, let's use failing disks. So most companies... How relevant. I know. It's fresh in my mind because you got to deal with that crap tonight or tomorrow or whatever. So most companies act in a position of just get the hardware, get it set up. And usually these orders come from up above the chain rather than someone who maybe actually knows what they're doing. So that would be reactive because hardware fails. We all know this. It's just the nature of things. The universe is filled with chaotic entropy and (laughs) things break. It's just going to happen. An example of proactive would be uh, specking out a server with redundancy or failover, or even just like hot swap bays for hard drives, implementing RAID, software hardware RAID, do what you want. I prefer software RAID on Linux, actually, because the the performance isn't as bad as it once was. Uh, It's actually pretty comparable to hardware RAID now, and you get so much more benefits. It's it's tied so closely into the, the operating system. It's awesome. And getting plenty of spare disks and keep them on hand, the exact kind of disks you need. Uh, make sure you test them first so you already have a pile of good and bad. That'll also give you a chance to RMA within the warranty period to make sure you get a good disk. Things like that, that's proactive. That's being proactive because that's knowing something will fail and having a plan in place for when it does. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything about this. <laughs> because you don't, you don't have one in place. No, that's not entirely true. Um, we do a pretty good job checking things like IO stat on a regular basis. If our drives were all smart enabled and our RAID controller could relay smart data to us, we would probably utilize that. We've got plenty of drives on hand. All of our drives actually have a three-year warranty, so the whole like testing them in RMA period thing's not usually an issue. That's still a good idea either way, so you, you can at least have a pile of known good drives. Yeah, I don't know. We don't go that far. We order... Uh, usually about 10 at a time at a pretty regular interval because uh, we found that if you order more than that at a time you end up getting them all from a same batch and at that point if you have a bad batch you end up with like half of them being bad yeah but i mean what's what's the difference between arming one drive and 10 dude have you ever sent a drive back to seagate because you have to send them all in an individual box with their own labels i have but you can you can still from what i remember you used to be able to uh, individually box them but still ship them as one unit i don't know the instructions pretty clearly say otherwise i've never tried it the other way yeah, I I, uh, I seem to remember being able to do that, but that may have changed. In any case, uh, I think we've been pretty proactive at BioFrontiers on the hardware side. We've got spare RAID controllers if we ever needed one in a pinch. We've got like... That's good. Yeah, uh, we've got plenty of extra cables. Of course, even little things. I mean, keeping extra screws around for your racks or oh, for your no. hard drives. Everything that could cause some kind of little hang up. Every little bit helps. Oh, yeah, I don't know how many rack screws I've dropped like inside a cab. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, exactly. I'm not getting that back it's gone forever and the other thing actually this is kind of understated but related is making sure you have a proper tool set in your server room is really important yeah magnetic grabber things like that or or even claw grabber might be better uh most of the stuff is properly shielded these days so magnets won't f with it too much especially the really weak magnets they use on those telescoping magnetic grabbers i don't know maybe i'll uh i'll link to some good tools in the in the show notes let's see uh, we can't do our job without you guys and without your cooperation. We aren't the enemy. That's another great one. I've talked about this before. I know I have. Probably episode three or four. Infosec contractors, or even infos, in-house infosec, whatever. They're not the bad guys. Just because they're de- they're the deliverer of bad news doesn't mean they're not there to help you. You know, you can't fix what you don't know isn't broken, and their job is to tell you what's broken. They're doing their job. That's why they're there. So I'm I'm all about that, and they they do get a lot of 
flack from managerial types, CEOs, and down the chain too. Sysadmins given a lot of a lot of flack because you know they they take it personally. Like, well, my my server would never be vulnerable. I'm like, you know what? If someone would offer me a free vuln scan, I'd be like, I'll take it. Yeah, I'd love it. Tell me what's what you find. I would love to know. Yeah, we've talked about this plenty. I think that's always the best the best route to take if anyone offers you any kind of help in that regard. If someone alerts you to an issue, we talked about this before, like if somebody tells you, hey, this is broken, don't take that the wrong way. Don't get defensive about it. Just appreciate that someone's giving you that input. Yeah, now would be a great time to also mention, uh, don't do this unsolicited. Because that's a really quick way to land yourself in jail and or have legal action presented against you. Always approach them first. Be like, look, I'm a pen tester. Can I offer my services? Or or are you interested in my services? You know, would you like to arrange something like that? Don't just scan them and be like, oh, hey, uh, we've never talked before, but I've found a list of these vulnerabilities because that's how you that. I mean, first of all, that's illegal because there's no prior consent given and second of all that's just plain rude like that's super rude don't bother me with that crap as someone <laughs> someone uh once sent at one of my places basically something like that where they're like i am working on this zero day that you're vulnerable to and i'm like oh yeah what, what what is that i mean i didn't respond to him yet but they're like he he came up with this stupid name for it and he's like it's when you have a DNS record pointed to 127.0.0.1, and I'm like, oh, I'd love to see where this goes. He says, it can lead to cross-site scripting attacks. And, and I'm like, all right, first of all, we have nothing in our web code pointing to that record. So, like, buzz off. Second of all, buzz off. This is, you know, we didn't ask for this. We know that record's there. We put it there. Leave us alone, man. So we <laughs> so we ended up reporting him to his ISP. As we should have done, because that's that that shit just don't fly, son. All right, last one. I, I hear you crack cracking open like a beer or something. Yeah, I just had to grab a beer. I finished my gin and tonic. Uh, what what beer are you drinking? Uh, same as two episodes ago or last episode. <laughs> uh, Denver Beer Company's Graham Cracker Porter. No, oh, that sounds good. It's kind of like campfirey tasting. Hmm. All right, last one. Learn how easy antivirus is to bypass how weak passwords are, common social engineering attacks, try to understand the concept of credential theft and view rights from an attacker's perspective. For example, if I can control your box, I may as well have all of your privileges. Going to HackerCons is a great example of, of this. It's also a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of drinking too, so I hope you can hold your liquor, but yeah, hacker cons are, are great. You learn all sorts of crazy interesting stuff. You get to stay modern with the attack world, so you learn how to best prevent it, and you get to enter in the minds of these of these people who, who do this. Either infosec, pen testers, people like that, or people who maybe legitimately are criminals, you know, like, it's a little bit of a mix of everyone there. They may not readily admit it to you because there's also some feds go to these things you know so usually it's talent scouts more than anything yeah you actually missed one too what's that you missed one of the tweets the redacted one no there was one that was redacted what what did i miss buy one of those purses that explodes into oh yeah yeah that was the top of my screen i missed that yeah i don't know what kind of purse he's talking about and i feel like i need to google for that but uh <laughs> that was that was one of them buy one of those purses that explodes into nunchucks wow I need to move on from that. Yeah, um, we're 25 minutes in and all we've done is talked about tweets. That's all right. The next step's going to go fast. So the next is Windows. Real quick, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time about this. I just want to point out how stupid it is. Windows 10 will share your Wi-Fi key with your friend's friends. They're turning WPA, WPA2, whatever. They're turning credentials. Keep in mind, these are basically passwords or passphrases. They're keys. They're turning that into social media. You, you will share, and this is like by default. This is turned on by default. You share these things with your friends automatically over Facebook and crap like that. And it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So basically my understanding is if you and I were both running a device that was running what they're calling Wi-Fi Sense, if I was mm -hmm. connected to my network and you came, you and I, if we were both on Wi-Fi Sense, you could connect not through me, but I could somehow pass those credentials to you, not in plain text, and you would never see the password supposedly, but you would be able to then connect to the same hotspot or Wi-Fi network that I was connected to. Yeah, everybody 
All of your contacts. Yeah. And all so of your friends. The thing would is, it. is, it says that the password must be stored centrally by Microsoft, and that right there is enough for me to say, "Fuck it, I'm not doing it." Yeah, yeah. And there's a way you can opt out by renaming your your ESSID, which is I'm not doing that. Well, Fuck not you. that. You can just turn it off. Turn what off? Wi-Fi sense. That depends on the clients. What? What do you mean? Th- that has to be done client side. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like I'm talking about. There's nothing I can do on my AP other than rename the ESSID, which I'm not doing. Correct. To prevent that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And that's true. Uh, you know, you can't say, like, disable sense on my network. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 stupid. And additionally... The only thing is, if that traffic coming from that client somehow was, like, identified or tagged in such a way that you could filter it, but I, I imagine that's not going to no, be the case. No, no. That's, that's, that wouldn't... I'd have to do deep packet inspection for that, and I'd have to look for it sending the packet. So I could intercept it, but you know what? That's too much work, and that the onus is not on me to do that. That's Microsoft's fuck-up. That's Microsoft's intentional fuck up so like why am i being punished for microsoft's security unconsciousness oh on my windows 7 box that i use for gaming i've gotten the invite to windows 10 several times now and i'm I'm just at this place where microsoft obviously isn't producing a good product like they once had so for me i opted out i'm gonna wait to see what everyone else says because i'm i'm not worried about being a first adopter you know that's stupid I do I do want to run tests on this. I want to see what happens if you use something like uh, like EAP TLS or something. Like some certificate-based wireless authentication scheme. Because that, I have a theory, won't pass through. Or it could. I mean, it's possible. I don't. I just don't know. I guess, it, if to be fair, if you use certificates, you could get around this. Well, sort of, in the sense that I could just revoke a cert like, after it's used. Sure, but you also, if someone doesn't have a cert, they still can't use your network. So they'd be connected, and the password might be valid but they couldn't actually utilize your Wi-Fi, right? Well, that's the thing. I don't know if Wi-Fi Sense will send that private key for the cert. Oh. Well, and cert, I guess. From, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah. So I read the article that's in the show notes right now. And then mm-hmm. I read another one. And I'll have to see if I can find it. It was on my work computer. So remind me next week. But from what I could tell, it is not going to actually pass the information from client to client. And Microsoft is only storing like a password. So it's not like you could upload a key. Well, not in the present form. For all we know, that might change. But you know what? Like TLS e- or EAP TLS is so uncommon. I don't know why it shouldn't be. It's so uncommon that they may just not see any point in implementing it. So that's a possibility. But it's still like, I really hope they change their mind about this because this is just a pain in my ass. And so in order to opt out of like the Google W, uh, the Google AP name tracking thing, you would suffix your ESSID with a certain string. In order to opt out of Wi-Fi Sense, you suffix your your ESSID with a certain string. Which is bullshit. You should be able to name your fucking network whatever you want. Here's the thing. They're different strings. There's no way to opt out of both at the same time. Oh, that's all. You gotta choose. It's like you'd have to have two networks, like a dual band router and one is opt out of one and one the other. But that's still obviously No, then the other, yeah, then it just flips. Exactly, exactly. So, I don't know. That that was my, my moment of anger. Yeah, that pisses me off. It happens. It's just a stupid fucking concept. If I want someone to have access to my Wi-Fi, I'm going to give them the password or, you know, get a certificate, whatever, set up. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Are you sawing through your table right now? No, that's that's the scroll wheel on my mouse. Holy shit, you need to, like, lube that. No, it's a brand new mouse. It's it's you just a really good... You need to lube that. No, I don't. It's you a brand new You need to ma- spit on it right now. No, I'm not spitting on this mouse. <laughs> You need to shut up. I'm going to move on. Yeah, I'm Whether, you're, I'm whether you're ready to come with me or not. Yeah, no, I'm over it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So let's talk about routing and firewalling. So first off, we've got... I'm going to talk about routing. So Linux by itself has routing capabilities. You can take a just a like a fresh install of the most basic Linux. Let's go with... Just use CentOS. CentOS, yeah, yeah. So, so CentOS. Just throw CentOS on a box. Throw like maybe... Four or five nicks in there. Really, you only need two, preferably three, but four or five and stuff makes it way easier. That's what I do. I do for mine. Keep in mind, most people aren't Brent. Well, well, yeah. I have I mean, a that's, normal that's router in my house, and I'm pretty happy. Well, with like five nicks, it lets me like not. It lets me manage all the switching on the box itself, rather than having to get a managed switch and do the routing there. Yeah, I understand. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. So I, I prefer that kind of centralized control. That's one box to back up. One, you know, whatever. So you, you've got some really basic things you could do. This. There's the basic routing, which is just the IP route to utilities. 
There's also the more legacy net tools where it's like the slash sbin or slash user slash bin route. In addition to that, there's the IP route two suite, which is newer. It's considered the preferential one. You know, the the net tool suite's kind of old and considered obsolete. That includes like IF config route might be it. <laughs> There's probably some other ones there, but IP route two does a really cool job where it's all kind of bundled into one tool called IP. You can do IP route, IP address, IP link, IP, you know, like it's all bundled into one tool. It's, it's really cool. It's kind of like system D. It's hard to get used to if you're used to IF config and stuff like that. But once you get the hang of it, and especially if you utilize like the aliases or like the shortcuts, it's really oh, yeah. nice. And yeah, I think, so instead of, uh, I think the output at this point is a lot nicer actually to read than IF config and stuff like that. It's definitely way easier to parse. That's for sure. I agree. I, again, at first I was like, I don't like this. I don't want this change. And of course, IF config is still available. Yeah. But if you may have to install it extra, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's better to just learn to use IP because ultimately it does a lot more for you and the syntax is pretty or like you know the command arguments are very similar across like you know the ip addressing and ip routing and stuff like that and it's got way better built-in slash internal ipv6 support which we'll talk about a little bit later but super cool oh we are we are out of ipv4 addresses right that's right. That's right. Just the other day, the uh, I think the last allocation was made. So now you ain't you ain't getting an IPv4 unless it's recycled from somewhere else. Which means that they are going to start to cost more. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they have been costing more. Yeah, and totally. I mean, it's been increasing pretty steadily, but yeah. So I mean, I guess we'll probably see some backing off on IP justification, which is a pain in the ass. But you know, the downside is like you you never know the reputation of the IP you're gonna get. So whatever. Moving on from there though is the uh, IP route two will let you set up dynamic routes meaning like they're only active while the box is up it's not actual dynamic routing but they're dynamic routes they're not static they're not going to be there when the box reboots the same with ip tables sort of ip tables most systems have like a default ip table script that runs on on boot for centos it's etsy sysconfig ip tables but they're not going to have like you you can't just add an ip tables or while the box is running and then expect it to be there when you reboot you have to actually add it to the static list the same goes for routing now shorewall i love shorewall because it lets it lets you build routing tables it lets you nat you know both dnat snat really easily and it's static it's configuration file based so you can build all your firewall rules, all of your routes, all of your masquerading, all that stuff in a clean, easy to understand config hierarchy. And it's there when you reboot. It's great. I love it. Can I? Um... No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, no, I just wanted to get some clarification. So on your routing box, your router, whatever the hell you actually call it, gateway sure yeah. do you run shorewell on that i do because we've, we've had this discussion yeah i know i i had thought you did but so just for clarification i had previously used shorewell but i'm kind of at this point where i don't run that much on my vps i don't run that many services on boxes at work like each box kind of has its own purpose so for me it's just become quicker to use raw ip table strings and that's somewhere well i used shorewell in the first place because of your recommendation really and that was back during my tectonic customer days but since then i've just kind of shifted in my needs shifted in you know my knowledge base i didn't know how to use raw ip table strings to make a functional firewall at that point but now i can do that and that's what i do just for kicks let me ask you how do you do uh rate limiting on ip tables are you asking me how i personally do it yeah sure we don't really have that situation anywhere but if you needed to, would you know how to do it? No, I honestly wouldn't know how to do it. It's something I'd have to look up if I was interested in implementing it. All right. It's it's like, this is an example of why you use Sherwells. Sherwell, it's built right in. There's a column for it. And one of the config files says rate. It's five, like, for instance, five minutes per connection. It's like 5m colon one. It's a really easy syntax and it compiles what normally would be like at least two to five separate ip tables rules just for contracting and things like that well i'm absolutely not saying shorewall doesn't have its place i'm not saying you shouldn't use it i'm just saying that at this point for me i don't see the reason to use it i mean for a for a gateway device though for like a home router absolutely yeah no and i'm not saying that you shouldn't use it by any means i mean yeah i mean obviously you swear by it and i trust you more than most people that i work with so <laughs> I, I mean you know your shit for the most part, with the exception of uh, OpenVPN. PHP, sure. Uh, no, I definitely know <laughs> OpenVPN. That's my bread and butter. I definitely know that. Yeah, so I definitely trust what you're saying. I think that there probably are. I, 
No, not probably. There are distinct advantages to using Shorewall. It's just for a simpler case, I don't think you have to go out and install Shorewall and learn the syntax for the config files, even though it is easy. I honestly, I would, I would recommend using it for a home router because it the the amount of rules you're needed you're going to need to be doing, especially once you get more than one interface into the mix. I mean, it's like playing a game of ping pong with an octopus. You know, like you're you're just going to lose track so quickly. So I mean, yeah, do what you want. If you want to use static IP tables rules, that's fine. I admire you for it. I am not that crazy. So I, I will kindly stick with Shorewall. So, I mean, I, I definitely would recommend you look into it, though, because it, it makes a lot of sense. The documentation is fantastic. It's got wonderful documentation. It tells you how to do it. basically anything you would want to do. So those are basically the two key components you're going to need for building like a home router system. The tricky part gets to be when, uh, well, you need a third one, DHCP. You're probably going to want DHCP. So you hook your your router box up to like a, a dumb switch, and then you can just throw DHCP off of that. You can hook it up to Ubiquity hardware, like the, the Unify APs. Super great things. They look like little white disks, but they're, they got great range. They run like a, a custom OpenWRT, so you can actually SSH into them. Really cool tools. They're super cheap, too. Like their enterprise level feature sets and quality for consumer price. That's fantastic. So then you can run the controller for those, the software controller for those on the router box. Make sure it's firewalled off and VLAN'd off and stuff to the right network though. And there you go. There's wireless. You've, you've got your dumb switch hooked up. So that's your ethernet network. Uh, and then you've got your separate WAN interface. Really cool stuff. It, real quick. And it's, it's all pretty relatively cheap. I mean, you can do all this with like 200 to $500, depending on how deep you want to go. Now, I know you're going to be like, but I could just get a router for 60 bucks. You can, but it's not going to let you do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, two things here. First yeah. of all, most commercial routers last you, I don't know, let's just say three years at the most. Yeah, three to five sounds sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, my router back, Planned obsolescence. back home in Pennsylvania, I actually have one of Apple's routers, which is called oh, an Airport Express. Mm -hmm. And granted, that thing has lasted for seven years, but my router here now in Colorado, I've gotten uh, Asus. And so far, so good, no complaints. But I mean, seriously, routers break all all the time. The thing about this box is if the wireless card takes a shit, you can just replace it. And that's like at the time, maybe a 20 or $25 expense. And that's going to last you another, you know, X number of years at that point. Yeah. And it's, it's still an x86 box. You want to rate it? Go right ahead. You want to back it up to your normal backup system? Go ahead. You want to boot it from USB? Go ahead. The amount of flexibility and stuff. And you've got a full, a full processor. Mine's got a, an Intel Atom 64 bit in it. I forget the exact model. I'll look it up. The amount of power of what that can do compared to like a normal consumer hardware well i love open wrt a lot we just spent a lot of time talking about this the last episode i think yeah last episode which is why i wanted to do this this episode well open wrt will let you run a lot more crap on your consumer hardware than what the company you bought it from may want you to it still has its limits it's got really small memory really small storage you can't do a lot of packet inspection and modification things like that you know it has its limits and for some people that's fine for me i'd like having more control over my network absolutely and i think that's something you have to evaluate you know if you're a college student and you're living in a dorm room or you're in your first apartment it's probably not that practical to go out and spend 500 bucks to make a router but yeah. if you're you know settling in you bought your first house you're in a house that's not your first house whatever if you want to be in control you went through the uh went through the trouble of running cat five lines throughout the house like i did yeah exactly no matter cat what your circumstances is, are if you have the room for it if you can afford to keep it running i think it's definitely actually way more cost effective yeah yeah arguably I mean, it, it, yeah uh, for the amount of power see what i'm about to do here for the amount of power you're getting for the amount of power you use it's definitely worth it it's it's a good trade-off and it, it definitely strengthens your linux and, and networking skills at the same time it's very handy so th that's for like a home router if you're running something like this in a dc or a colo or something like that you're gonna want something that can understand bgp and rip and and ospf and things like that i would recommend quagga which is a fork of Quagga? Quagga? I think it's Quagga. I'm pretty sure it's Quagga. It's a fork of uh, Zebra, GNU Zebra, but that hasn't officially like dead at this point. You know, it's it. The, the maintainer did a great job with it, but it's not really being updated anymore. Quagga takes 
everything that Zebra could do and expands upon it. It's got some really cool stuff. It, it handles all the internet routing protocols you would need. And this is what I meant by actual dynamic routing, like dynamic routing rather than dynamic routes. The internet uses dynamic routing, so you don't need to keep a routing table for every single address space that's allocated in one box, because that just would not make sense. That'd be, well, impossible. By the way, I'll put in the show notes, I just want to mention this, there was a, uh, I think a RIP vulnerability announced. Version, it might have been version 1, which is pretty obsolete at this point, but I think there was a vulnerability for it just recently announced. I'll see if I can dig that up and put it in. But most setups are using BGP. It's likely BGP is what you're going to be using. So Quagga will let you do that. And it's pretty easy to configure and set up, too. Your typing sounds like a machine gun. You sound like a machine gun, you dick. Yeah. No, you sound... Oh, you were typing to me on IRC. Jathan just sent me a message in IRC saying I should talk about the NIST changes to random number generation because of current events. I have that on the list for another episode. Okay. Well, I just didn't know since it was like, you know, current event and not just... Yeah, this episode is going to be long enough as is, so I'm just going to... I'm just saved for that because I, I kind of want to go into a little bit more detail for that. I don't know. I'll, I'll quick mention it in the show yeah, notes or something. paste it in the show notes. If you're interested, you can read. We'll talk about it hopefully next week i guess yeah or we could just not talk about it and i'll just paste in the show notes either way whatever yeah so quagga there's also bird there's there's a couple others but i mean bird's pretty much your only other option for a decent implementation now it's a bit harder to configure and the daemon requires a reload if you make changes but uh, on the upside, it's included by default with a lot of things. I know Debian includes it, things like that. So Quagga may require some um, some extra initial setup, and Bird is probably going to require some additional maintenance setup, you know, some additional maintenance configuration and uh, handling. So I mean, it's up to you. It's how you choose to do your style. I like Quagga personally, whatever. But I'll, I'll see if I can get a, a list of all the ones I know of. But again, you know, most of them are, are obsolete or don't handle modern protocols or things like that. Like, long story short, just stick with Quagga if you need to put... And that's only if you need to do internet routing. You know, if you're in a colo or a DC or something like that. Uh, that's co-location or, or data center. Most of the people listening probably aren't working with that. And if they are, they're probably already got their Cisco and Juniper boxes, which I, I hate both of them with a passion, but that's that's a topic for a different day. So that's internet routing. Talked about Chorwall. OpenVPN. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that later in VPNs. Ubiquity. So Ubiquity has software called Unify, and you basically take your wireless APs, your Ubiquity wireless APs, mount them on the wall, and you can either like daisy chain them through wireless. I don't do this because it just it's a horrible latency introduced. Kind of cuts the signal in half, basically, if you don't even... Even know what you're doing i just keep ethernet backbones to them all back to the central box and then that box runs power over ethernet and it's switched into the router box which runs unify so what the ap's do is they contact through that poe switch into the unify software and that's actually where you configure them and then it pushes out the changes to the firmware on the actual ap's so it's, it's kind of a bit of a unusual circumstance but it's very powerful super powerful i definitely would recommend you look into getting some ubiquity stuff and there's also a huge list of books on this topic specifically ones that are free via packet pushers they're another podcast if you're trying to get into network engineering or if you're in the field and just want to stay on current events in that industry and things like that go follow them they're fantastic packet pushers are awesome so they've got a, a list uh it came out just on the 27th of april a whole list of a bunch of different free books, but I do want to focus on their their section on networking. TCP IP, basically. So they've got that there. I'll put a link up. They've got a couple great books on it for Windows, too. There's one for Windows, too. The Pink Book, I'll link to it. It's not actually pink in the most revision, most recent revision. That's another fantastic resource for this. It, it'll not only get you really intimate with, like, Linux and Unix uh, system internals, but it also introduces a lot of the supported concepts. So, like, you learn a lot about routing, a lot about DNS, DHCP, addressing, all sorts of crazy stuff. Really fantastic. And then there's one more by, um, it's huge. It's, it's like, might, it might be one of the biggest tomes in my library. It's put out by No Search Press. I love No Search Press, by the way. They are just a, a fantastic publisher. They've got one called the TCP IP Guide. It's huge. I mean, it's maybe, like, 
four inches thick. Hardcover too, so it's a bit of an inconvenience to carry around, but that covers anything you would want to need to know about networking. Not just in Linux, but like bottom up how networking works, how it actually works, and how the internet works. Like you you learn how it all plays together, and it's really great stuff. It also has a, a pretty good section on IPv6 too. So I'll, I'll link to that. I believe the author has a free version on his site as well. Um, I'd have to check on that, but it's it's a little bit inconvenient to read. I would get the the hardcover version anyways, just to support the author. I mean, he, he put a lot of work into it and you can tell. So IPv6, it's basically, if you've configured IPv4 through your standard networking configuration utility on Linux, you've done IPv6. The only thing that's different is the addressing. Well, that's not true. So there isn't really any actual DHCP in IPv6. There's DHCP6, which you can use, but I mean, it doesn't include things like NATing and things like that. It's... It's more so centered around actual address, letting clients know what their address is, what their allocation is. Yeah, I don't know. There's more to it than just that, though. I mean, IPv6. There, and there the is, but yeah, but I mean, in the, in the concept of this, like, that's more, it's like three things that are different. The addressing scheme, because it's, it's a huge address space now. It's massive, sure. Routing, but that, again, is basically is is like 90% the addressing scheme changes. DHCP, because instead, in IPv6, the closer thing you have to traditional DHCP is router advertisements. Right, but you still need, uh, I mean, from a web hosting perspective, you need to update your DNS records. With, uh, oh yeah, the 4A records? Yeah, that's important. I mean, if you're hosting a website. If you use DNS, sure, yeah. But, I mean, how many people are going to be pointing a website to their home router? I'm sorry, what was that? I'm like totally zoned out for a second. How many people are going to be pointing DNS to their home router over IPv6? Well, are we just talking about people in their home routers? I mean, that's that's kind of what I, I wanted to mention. I didn't know if you were routing, like transitioning but... to IPv6 on a whole as a broader topic here. No, 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 no. I, I included it in this episode because it, it ties nicely in. Got it. Okay. Well, then apologies. I shouldn't have even brought <laughs> it up. But I mean, seriously, I was just thinking that you were talking about IPv6 in general. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to I'm gonna dig way deeper in IPv6 in a later episode for sure. Okay. But, you know, this is like just basic level stuff. Usually you're not going to be the one setting up that most of them are doing uh, stateless or router advertisement. I know Comcast, I believe, is doing stateless. Pretty sure. I don't think they send router advertisements. I'd have to see. Pretty sure it's stateless, where basically you get assigned a block and that's it. You know, you're free to do with that block whatever you want. So yeah, there is no natting per se in IPv6. Uh, you can kind of fudge it in to make it happen, but you don't need to. I've got some links so you can test to make sure your site is IPv6 capable. And guys, I apologize. This is going to be a long episode. We got one more topic to cover and we're almost there. The last topic might be a long one though. It might be. If you're fading at this point, take a break, grab a beer, come back. Yeah, there's there there's a, a reason. Button. There is, yeah, there's a reason there's a pause button. Obviously, I just faded for about a second, so. <laughs> you're weak. What happened to like all your energy? Mm, well, I'm about two drinks in. We're talking about Uh-oh. networking, which is like admittedly i know nothing about networking so if i were going to go for any search right now i think the first thing i would do is try to actually learn something about networking because i have no fucking idea how that shit works that's that's kind of true to be honest no it is i'm not gonna lie about it i mean most of what i do is hardware and software and that's about it but not networking hardware by any means my title on paper at least is is network engineer so i would hope i know this this yeah i mean for me setting up an ip masquerade the other day was like basically kind of like i don't actually have a good analogy but it sucked (laughs) (laughs) it was i may have been laughing into my hand for a little bit it was it was amusing for sure Damn, what is a gateway yeah i i got to explain them all that good stuff but now you know so back to IPv6, I'm going to just post a link of all the sites you can use to test if your website or your local connection, which is really cool, is IPv6 capable and properly configured. So it'll tell you first if it's available and also if it's like, if everything's set up correctly. Very useful stuff. That'll come in handy for the next time I talk about IPv6. Don't know when that is. Probably, oh, I want to say two episodes from now. So not this coming episode after this one, but the one after that one. So that'd be uh, season zero episode. 12 no 13 13 13 yeah episode 13 yeah so keep an eye out for that and then there's ipv6 tunnels so if you're i if you have an isp like i do that doesn't offer uh native ipv6 yet you can set up an ipv6 tunnel through tunnelbroker.net again i'll include a link it's also a good place to to learn more about ipv6 and they have like ipv6 certification which you might want to look into jathan i definitely will i actually had an offer for my employee
employer to pay for some certifications this summer. So I think I should take advantage of that and at least get one or two if I can before the end of the summer. Well, tonerbroker.net, uh, it's run by Hurricane Electric. I, I'm pretty sure their cert exams and everything are free. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, make yeah, sure it's, it's just... you forward that my way. Of course, it'll be in the show notes at this point. But... Yeah, just text the show notes. I'll put it in there. But, you know, there's there's better. If I were you, I, I would spend that money on Red Hat certification because that'll cover networking and things like that, too. Fair. So I'm done with IPv6 for now. But again, not not burying it yet. We'll wait till I get my certification and then we'll talk about it for real. I don't think you're ever going to do that, to be honest. So I'm just going to say season zero, episode 13. We'll talk about it. What an asshole. But honestly, dude, think really. Are you going to get your certification by then? I don't know. How long does it take? Well, you need to understand IPv6 first. I understand most things the first time I read about them. Well, you don't seem to read about them. <laughs> You're pretty lazy. Uh, no shit. So I, I don't think that'll happen. But read about it. All right. I'll, I'll, I can hook you up with some some documentation and other uh, reference for that. So I'm going to move on to VPNs. I have VPN endpoints gateway on my on my routing device. And what that means is I can be on like a road warrior client, be on my laptop out on the road and VPN in through the VPN server, which is not running at home. And through that server, I can connect to the router slash gateway I have at my home. And then use that to route through it so I can access my LAN. Really, it's it's a VLAN because I, I, I keep a lot of that stuff, you know, segregated and firewalled off. So if my VPN were happen to get compromised, they wouldn't have access to all the important crap. So I have that, you know, segregated off, but I'm then able to get into my local network from a remote location without having to install a VPN client on each and every single local device. So that's pretty cool. That's in the OpenVPN documentation. Maybe not to the degree. Ironically enough, you're actually going to find more documentation on that particular setup in the Shorewall documentation. That's why Shorewall is awesome. I fully support them. So OpenVPN supports some, a, a very wide range of encryption schemes. It supports tunneling or peer-to-peer. -peer, uh, and there's some slight differences in how they handle packets and stuff. But their website does a pretty good job of explaining which one you would use in which case. They've got, you know, custom address pool. They support IPv6. A lot of really cool stuff. OpenVPN is awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Open source, yeah. I mean, I'll just say right now, I my VPS can only be accessed by VPN, which some people think is kind of stupid, but I'm fortunate enough, I guess, to be with Linode. And so if something ever really happened, I could always shell in with their, their remote access tools. And that point, like, they just need to brute force your Linode login. Yeah, but I've never had this problem, and I've been doing this for how long? So I don't anticipate it ever really happening. I'm just saying, like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Sure. No, I'm not. I mean, there's people that'd be opposed to that. And that's fine. It's just that's what I do. Because ultimately, it really hardens security. Well, do you disagree? I, I wouldn't say really. So can you shell into your box just normally? Yeah, I've got rate limiting on and I disable uh, password authentication. Yeah. Well, I only use keys and over a VPN. So at that point, you actually have two keys because you have a VPN key and then your secure shell key. Unless they have your Linode login, which let's not forget did happen. Yeah, no, you're right. It did. Yeah, it's not unheard of. But at that point, you know, you can't really turn that off no matter what. Yeah, but then you're still relying on the security of your browser and your browser is probably one of the weakest so software in terms of security of your entire computer. Um, I, I mean, yeah, but you're not really relying on your browser unless you have to resort to that. I, I'm just, all it takes is once. Sure. But I mean, yeah, I, I get it. it. It adds security to the implementation, but I wouldn't call it inherently securing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but that's, I mean, you know, it's it's... It is what it is. But yeah, I mean, I think we, either way, we both agree OpenVPN is fantastic. We both use it exclusively. I've yeah. never used another VPN service at this point. I, I have, and I go back to OpenVPN every time. And, you know, it lets you do things like uh, route traffic over it, so you can use it as an internet endpoint. Right. You can basically use it as a tunnel. Yeah, tunnel mode. Yeah, it's, it's very, very handy. There's also PPTP. Wait, real quick. And Linux. Is, yes. Real quick, sorry. Um, it is worth noting that some VPS providers, if you're on a VPS, will require you to contact them in terms of getting like a virtual network interface set up for OpenVPN. So, you know... Typically, yeah, typically that's only if they're Virtuoso or OpenVZ. Right. Well, that was what happened to me at Tectonic, which, you know, yeah, I knew a we guy running... at the time, but... <laughs> yeah, that was me. Yeah. Yeah, we were running OpenVZ. Yeah. 
But don't let that be a barrier. If it's something you want to do, contact them. In most cases, they'll be happy to, you know, help you out with that. Or get yourself like a KVM or Zen provider, which you really should do anyways. They're they're cheap enough now where you can you can actually do it. Yep, DigitalOcean. Well, everything. Node, Linode. Yeah, we or Linode. We listed how many last week. So yeah, we we there's a whole list. I'll I'll talk more about them in a future episode too. So look forward to that. I guess. Yeah, you can get them pretty cheap nowadays, and if you're only just routing internet, that's really all you need to do. But yeah, so another thing to, to watch out for, though, is you may break their terms of service if you rely on a VPS provider. Some of them do not allow VPN. I mean, they may not enforce it technologically, but if they find out you're running VPN, they're going to, like, stomp your account into oblivion. So just be aware of that as well. Sometimes if you explain to them, like, look, it's only for my access. I'm the only one using it. Usually they'll be like, all right, well, that's cool. Go ahead, you know, they'll kind of look the other way there are even some that that won't work on so that's open vpn pop top or pptp the linux software is called pop top oh my gosh i i hate it so much it's supported on just about every network capable device windows mac os x android ios all of them have native part of the standard vanilla distribution uh pptp clients the problem is the strongest encryption you can get there is ms chat v2 which is known broken <laughs> so there's been no real measure to remove that and people still use it they refer to them as microsoft vpns you know that's microsoft's default style it's it's a horrible broken technology and it needs to die in a fire but a lot of people use it and it just won't go away much to my consternation i'll post some papers on uh, actually breaking that so you can see how easy it is in practice to to break that encryption but yeah it's it's not it's pretty trivial to get around and it also requires GRE. So if you happen to do a VPS and, you know, you your provider maybe has a funky network, they usually have to enable GRE for you, especially on OpenVZ containers. And a lot of them won't do that simply because they don't know how to. If you don't know how to, read some of the documentation I'm going to link to and you'll, you'll figure it out. It's a really old technology. It just needs to die. I'm just going to stop talking about it because it's, it's, it's horrible. A good contender for OpenVPN is IPsec. Uh, in Linux, this is implemented via the StrongSwan software. Uh, I think there might be a couple others. IPsec plus uh, LTP, it's, it's pretty strong, you know, but it's, it's still not going to be as strong as OpenVPN. Granted, it is supported a lot of other places, but it's not as, it doesn't give you the flexibility that OpenVPN does, either in encryption or implementation. And it, it has some other gotchas as well. So it's not ideal for me. Uh, it's much more complicated to get going. It's a lot harder to fudge into making it work, but it's more widely supported than OpenVPN is, because, you know, OpenVPN, you still need to install the, the client or server software, no matter what. And at least it's not PP TP. You know, at least it's not MSChat v2 at best. So, I don't know. It's a long one. Yeah, this is turning into a hell of a long episode. No, that was our last topic, but I mean, we're, it's probably going to edit down to like maybe 53 to 55 minutes, I'm going to guess. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you sound tired. You sound exhausted. I seriously had a day from hell and I'm just over it. I want to go to sleep, but... But you were so bouncy! I know. Well, I think it was just like, I was still you know, fueled by the adrenaline that kept me running between the two buildings. Oh, forever. yeah. And then once I sat down in my chair in my kitchen and, you know, it's nice and cool in here. I wasn't... Get yourself a beer. Yeah, yeah, I was just like down. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I know how that goes. All right. Well, I'm going to close this out then. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. And this is Vince. This is Minus Trivia. See you around.